Welcome to the Who Is This Man podcast. We've been exploring the ways that the Gospel of Mark uses references to the Old Testament and Israel's history to make sense of this person of Jesus. In these episodes, we'll start exploring the ways that Mark draws parallels between Jesus and King David. Ever since the days of David, Israel has been longing for their kingdom to return and to gain the same political autonomy that they enjoyed under the reign of David. What we're going to see in these episodes is how Mark makes it clear that although Jesus' methods of kingship are quite different from David's, Jesus' kingdom is indeed the kingdom that Israel has been waiting for. I did not get whatever you sent. Okay, I emailed it to... Friggin' didn't get it. Oh, it hasn't sent yet because I'm not connected to the internet. Oh, that's fair. (laughs) I I don't have internet, but I have hotspots. Well, here, I can just use my hotspot. Brennan, how are you doing? Hey, uh, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. This is the first, uh, we should say this. Yeah. This is the first time you and I have ever recorded a podcast episode in person. Yeah. Because Brennan has a house now. I I do. And and I can't believe I was on your other podcast. Like, that seems like forever ago, but that was was still in COVID. No, it was before COVID. Oh, okay. Okay, we we just recorded online because we were, we didn't want to, why didn't we? Well, because I was living in BC. And you guys were all living here. Thank you. Okay. That makes sense. I was like, I never talked to people online before COVID. (laughs) But you know, that the last podcast that we did together, I was thinking about that. I I went back and listened to some of the old episodes that we did. Mm -hmm. And the last episode that we released was like January of 2020. So that was like just before, like that was when we were just hearing whispers of COVID-19. I actually didn't hear anything until March. Really? Yeah. Oh, legit. You you weren't in the know. No, I I do not keep, I'm pretty bad at that. I know some people really value keeping up on like everything, you know, world issues or whatever. I just, I just, no, not interested. You're just more interested in learning about Jesus. Yeah. 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 And so, so, but I was thinking about that. So that episode was released just as I was hearing like the first whispers mm. of COVID-19. And yeah. I was thinking about that and I was thinking that feels like forever ago that we released that episode, Yeah. but that's how long we've been under COVID. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's so weird to but think about. We're in person, but we're in person. Freaking awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're immune to COVID now yeah. and we're safe and we're in person and you have a house. I have a house. That's and we got fun. our microphone set up here at your yeah. kitchen table. It's a little bit more echoey than, than normal. but Yeah, we should say that if you hear any echoes, it's just because we're in Brennan's house. Maybe a, maybe a slight dip in audio quality, but hopefully a, a, a raise in the, com, in the communication. That's true, yeah. because it's Give really awkward sometimes to talk over Zoom mm-hmm. where there's a slight delay yeah. between the person talking and you hearing the person yeah. and... Yeah, but we're here in person, and today, Brandon, we're going to talk about Jesus. Oh. (laughs) Surprise. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus and David. Sweet. In the Gospel of Mark. Okay, cool. Now, previously, we, I mean... (laughs)
So previously on the show, we talked about uh, how the kingdom of God um, that Jesus's contemporaries, his contemporary Jewish community would have been expecting was a very earthly political expectation, especially keeping in mind the fact that these are people that have a long history of exile. Yeah. There's a, there's the Babylonian, well, there's Egypt, then there's Assyria, then there's mm-hmm. the Babylonian exile. And then at the time of Jesus, they are living under Roman occupation. Yeah. And so there's this expectation that things are not always going to be this way because they are, God's chosen people and they're holding on to that. Yeah. There's this expectation that they will not always be living under a foreign power. They will not always be under exile. They will rule themselves, be autonomous in their own homeland. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the ex well, this is the expectation that Jesus is kind of invoking when he talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. This expectation that God's chosen people will be autonomous, that God's righteousness will prevail. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, uh, sorry, so I kind of have a ran, random question. Um, do you think that like the, the Israelites at the time, w- was there a certain time they were expecting a Messiah? Like, did they think, oh, it's going to be this occupation or did, could they right. see foresee like, oh, it, you know, maybe the people during Babylon would have thought that Messiah would come after that. Or then maybe they would think like, oh, we'll get through Rome. And yeah. then eventually 500 <laughs> eventually. years from now, there'll be another kingdom. Yeah. And then like, well, and so I don't know if like I there wasn't a uniform expectation across the Jewish world. There right. were I mean yeah. there weren't any uniform beliefs across the Jewish world. Right. We can't, honestly, it gets thorny whenever we start saying like this is what the Jewish people believe okay. because I mean how can you even say this is what Christians believe even today? Right? Like right. there's so it's such a spectrum. But yeah, uh, like in the Jewish world, we've talked about this I think previously, but you have certain groups that are saying let's just become friends with Rome mm-hmm. to make to try to politically weave ourselves into the Roman empire and establish some sort of like autonomy for ourselves within the Roman context. Right. And then you have other groups that are on the opposite end of the spectrum, literally trying to stir up violent insurrection against Rome. Mm -hmm. And, and then, I mean, even like before Rome, there's the whole, uh, there's the whole Hanukkah story where you have Judas Maccabeus, which literally means Judas, the hammer, which is pretty sick, (laughs) sick. Who is, um, you know, he leads this revolt and, uh, there's this whole, there's this whole history of Jewish revolt against their current oppressor. And in those cases, I think there's a sense that like the kingdom of God is coming, but we're taking it into our own hands. We're, we're establishing it. Like we are justified in this violent insurrection because this is what God wants Okay, because we know that the kingdom of God is the ultimate goal. Now there's a sense of sort of nostalgia in this expectation because the Israelites are looking back and this is what we're talking about in this episode. The Israelites are looking back to the kingdom of David as kind of the last time that they were really autonomous. Mm, Like this is the last time that we had our own King, that God's righteousness prevailed that Mm. now obviously it's not quite that straightforward because David was a human being and had his fair share of flaws, but David becomes this kind of, nostalgic kind of like how Mm. Americans today would think about like George Washington, right? Right. Like he's this kind of historic figure that kind of represents what we want to preserve. Whereas this was, this was our statement of political autonomy. This was our, you know, when, when we had our own land, our own kingdom and and, we're like, and united under David. Cause like after then it, after it it split up, then it split and then things got really weird. 
yeah in in israel's history um yeah and so there's and what the jewish people are holding on to and we're going to get into this in more detail is a handful of prophetic texts from what we would now call the old testament that correlate uh actually i don't want to say correlate that specifically kind of prophesy this like idea that the kingdom of david will eternally flourish through david's offspring okay now something to keep in mind is that of course anyone who's ever tried to read the bible all the way through knows that the bible is full of genealogies Mm -hmm. genealogies were very important not even so much as a way of preserving like actual biological data but as a way of preserving like the national identity, the ethnic identity. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. Right. Like when, when Jesus's genealogy is given in the book of Matthew, we're not even in Matthew yet. We're still just, we're still just in Mark. We're still just in the smallest gospel, which yeah. is very overwhelming mm. at this rate. We, like my goal with this podcast was to get through the entire new Testament, but at this rate, like we're probably <laughs> going to be 55 years old. before. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. um, Unless we can start making money. This could be our full-time yeah. job. Oh my gosh. Please. Somebody sponsor us to do this. <laughs> if I, if this could be my full-time job, that'd make me so happy. <laughs> but um, what was I going to say? So yeah, there's these prophetic texts from the old Testament that, and we're going to dive into this more that speak to uh, the kingdom of David kind of being restored. And this is adopted as what we would call an eschatological hope by yeah. the by Jesus's Jewish contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And by eschatological, I mean, this mm-hmm. is the future that they were hoping for. Right. They were hoping that a future, in the future, there would be a restoration of David's kingdom to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Okay. And that's why, like, in, in Matthew, this is what I was going to say, when the genealogy of Jesus is given— Again, it's not so much like he's not, it's not like ancestry.ca, like actually tracking like the biological line that Jesus descended from. The point there, and I'm not saying it's incorrect, but the point there is more so Jesus is descended from David. Right. And there's, there's groupings of seven within that genealogy, which is a really significant number symbolically. Mm -hmm. There's lots of crazy stuff going on there. So that genealogy of that line from David to Jesus is incredibly significant to Jesus's contemporaries. And Mark doesn't give that genealogy because Mark, I think, is a lot more creative in his narrative. Matthew just kind of hits you over the head with it. But right. Mark, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark weaves it in subtly. Okay. And so what we're talking about today is basically the ways in which Mark weaves David into the way that he talks about Jesus. Cool. To kind of invoke this theme that Jesus is the Davidic king that they've right. been expecting even though it doesn't look anything like they were expecting it to look. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that kind of uh, like pushing this idea of Jesus fulfilling this, is this more, I guess, what do you think is the, why would uh, Mark put this emphasis on? Do you think it's just like, so that people realize he's the Messiah? Do you think it yeah. has, it carries this weight of, almost like devoting yourself to a king in the way of Jesus. And like, so if I'm putting my own cards on the table, yeah, that's exactly what I think. Okay. I think there's a sense. And we talked about this. I've talked about this right back, even before you were on the show, when uh, I talked about like how Mark uses the term gospel. Oh, right. Yeah. We, we think of gospel as being a very like spiritual reality. Like our sins are forgiven and we're going to heaven when we die. Mm -hmm. But in the ancient world, and we know this by the way that the gospel was used in context outside of the Bible. Yeah. 
gospel was a political agenda. Like the gospel that you followed was a political identity. Right. So to say this is, and actually this is a perfect, this, I'm glad you brought this up because this is a perfect segue (laughs) into how I wanted to start. So actually we're going to start with Mark chapter one, verse one, because that's where Mark's use of David shows up. Beauty. So do you want to go ahead and read Mark chapter one, verse one? Yeah. Mark one, verse one. Uh, I think we're in the NASV, NASB. We are in the NASB, <laughs> version. always. Okay. Um, it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom. That's it. Stop right there. I did. We are, <laughs> there is so much already going on here. Cool. Like I was just saying, and we talked about, I talked about this in an earlier episode with this idea that gospel, like gospel was a word that Caesar's followers used for, to describe following Caesar, right? Caesar's followers talked about the gospel of Caesar, the gospel of the Roman empire. Mm -hmm. So if this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like a direct challenge to the political agendas of the world. It's like, you're not loyal to Caesar anymore. You're loyal to Jesus. Right. And we see this. I talk about this a lot. Anyone who hangs out with me for any extent of time knows I'm really interested in this, but we see that in the way that the early church in Rome was persecuted Mm -hmm. because it was this idea that was very prevalent amongst the early Christians. And I think we've lost a little bit of today, if I'm being honest, that you cannot be allied with Caesar and Jesus at the same time. Right. The kingdom of God means that you don't serve any earthly king. Yeah. And that's what led to a lot of early Christian persecution in Mm -hmm. Rome. And this idea that Mark uses where he weaves this David narrative through the Jesus story really, I think, taps into that and puts a political emphasis on following Jesus. Not that following Jesus is going to get your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven when you die, yeah. but that following Jesus is to believe that this man is king yeah. in with the same authority as David even though it's not a king that the world accepts. Right. Uh, yeah, we'll get more into that later. But okay. what's going, the first thing, so that's gospel. The second thing I want to point out here is his title, Christ. Because this is like literally... Jesus' last name. Jesus' <laughs> last name. Well, so whenever I think about the word Christ, I always remember that scene from the Simpsons movie where they everyone thinks that they're going to die. And mm-hmm. Ned Flanders is with his sons. And he's like, now boys... When you meet Jesus, make sure to call him Mr. Christ. <laughs> I always I always think about that because I think a lot of people do just think like Christ is just part of Jesus's name. Yeah. Right? But it's it's definitely not. Yeah. So do you know what Christ means? Um, honestly, no. Well, so, like I think I've I've definitely been taught it in Bible college, but it's not something I've retained because I could not tell you. So it literally means anointed one. Mm, okay. It means something or well. someone who is anointed. Right. So we're going to see how um, we're going to see how that's relevant to the Old Testament. But what's relevant right now is that to call Jesus the anointed one is already to kind of put him in line with like Old Testament kings, because this idea of anointing someone Mm -hmm. like like David was anointed before he became king. Yeah. That's like part of David's story is that he was he was picked out to be king. Right. He was anointed. And then there was a period of time where he wasn't king yet, but mm. he had already been anointed. Oh yeah. That's a that's a cool uh, right. like parallel that I've never thought about. And that's that's pointed out here in this book that we're, we've been following yeah. uh, by Dr. Richard Hayes. Uh, that's pointed out that that's a very close parallel between Jesus and David is he's anointed, 
but not everyone, he's not been inaugurated as king yet. And so, uh, you know, there's this parallel between, actually, we're going to talk right about this. There's this parallel between this period of time where Jesus is wandering around, you know, on his political agenda. Mm -hmm. He's been anointed as king, but he's not been enthroned yet. And the only people who really follow his agenda are this like renegade band of followers that are traveling around with him. And it's very, it's a very similar kind of storyline to David's story. Yeah. And we're going to talk more about that specifically later. Cool. But so Mark uses this term Christ, he, which means anointed. He uses it seven times in total. Okay. Five of those times appear with the definite article. So it's not Jesus Christ. It's Jesus the Christ. Ah, okay. So it's, so Mark seems to be implying it's not just a general, it's not just Mm. like anyone can be Christ. It's like, this is the Christ. There's only one and this is it. Okay. So during, um, during Jesus's crucifixion in Mark 15, uh, I'll let you read this verse as well. There's this scene where one of the spectators in the crowd is making fun of Jesus while he's on the cross and you can read what he says. Yeah. So from the words of a mocker, Mark 1532. That's good context. Cause just reading that out, yeah. I was like, what is, what does this mean? Yeah. Um, Mark 1532, let this Christ, the King of Israel come down from the cross. <clears throat> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> Lost my voice there. Let this Christ, the King of Israel come down from the cross so that we may see and believe those who are crucified with him were also insulting him. Yeah, so what's happening here is this guy's being sarcastic. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. it, it could be read very more sarcastic. Like, let oh. that, let this Christ, yeah, this guy, king of Israel... This guy who thinks he's the king... Yeah, come down from that cross. Yeah, like, yeah. Exactly, that, and that's exactly what's going on, because this this spectator would know that this title Christ is a royal figure. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a title that invokes a sort of royal authority. And so he's saying, like, well, if this guy's Christ, like, come on, he's clearly not yeah so that like that's what's going on here this is clearly sarcastic and this term this term christ and this actually i should stress this is one of the times where it shows up with the definite article so it's like the christ oh okay um i mean it's this christ in this context but it's not again it's not like this is a general title that can be applied to anyone right. it's like this man is claiming to be the christ so in in the original language does it just add the article that we're missing or does Christ actually have kind of two original no, language tra- like uh, well, translations? Well, so it's like the word the, yeah, like okay. that's the definite article. So that's why like in Mark's gospel, five times that the word Christ is used is yeah. followed by an article like the, or this. Okay. So this is, can be interchanged with the, the in this category. I think so. Okay. I think so. It makes that's sense. A good question. Like it, it makes sense that here as he's mocking him, he's saying that he is not the Christ. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like maybe this dude, maybe this dude believed he was some sort of anointed. Maybe he saw a miracle, yeah, but, but he then, still didn't. Then you know. when Jesus, and I'm sure that happened to a good deal of people that yeah. they believe that Jesus was onto something, but then yeah. he got crucified and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, like you said, get this loser out of here. Like you said, you said in the last episode, you're like, they probably thought like, well, there was three years. We'll never get back. Yeah. Like we, <laughs> we thought this guy was onto something, but, yeah. Yeah. um, and that's why, I mean, in light of the resurrection, you can see this is not as apparent in Mark. It's mostly apparent in the Gospel of John. After the resurrection, then the disciples kind of look back at everything that happened and they're like, oh, like yeah. now it makes sense. Yeah, right. And John actually points that out specifically at a few points. He says like, you know, before the resurrection, we had no idea mm-hmm. what Jesus was talking about. But mm-hmm. after the resurrection, then this made sense. Right? Yeah. 
Anyway, so this actually, I'm glad you brought up the Greek because we're going to talk a little bit about Greek. Bringing up all this, the good things. This, <laughs> this segment of the show is called, It's All Greek to Me. Mm. And this is where we talk about the Greek New Testament. Actually, we're talking about the Greek Old Testament. Septuagint. The Septuagint. Mm-hmm. Very good. You see, four years of Bible school, paying yeah. off. I don't think I don't think I remember learning that in the Bible school. <laughs> so the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the old, what we would call the Old Testament. Yeah, and it was written across the second and third centuries BC. Okay, so about two to three hundred years before Jesus. Yeah. So the interesting thing about the Septuagint, actually you and I were just talking about this earlier and this is probably good to throw out. Yeah. The Septuagint was necessary because after the time of Alexander the Great and spread, we call this Hellenization, spreading Greek culture throughout the Mediterranean world, Greek became a standard language of commerce and business. And and so it would like most people in the Mediterranean world would have some knowledge of Greek. Right. And so around the second and third centuries BC, I don't know exactly why, but Israel's scriptures were translated into Greek. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this was just to make them more accessible to a wider audience or to just for preservation purposes, but yeah, they, they like, they honestly could have been scared that like their, their language could have been like, yeah, you know, they, if they become Roman yeah, and then they're like, it's like, well, we're going to lose Hebrew. So yeah. we got to keep this, keep our scriptures preserved. Right. Who knows? So anyway, it's, called the Septuagint. And the reason the Septuagint is so important for New Testament scholarship specifically is that quite often uh, the way that certain Greek words are used in the Septuagint gives us tremendous insight into how they're being used in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Because we know that the authors of the New Testament were reading the Septuagint. We know that they were familiar with the Septuagint. Which is so interesting because all of the authors would have been Correct me if I'm wrong. All of them would have been Jewish uh, heritage. Um, was there any? Oh, Timothy, I guess was yeah. Was uh, his father was yeah. He Greek. was half, he was half and half. Yeah. yeah. So I, I I I can't remember, yeah. but I think most of them would have been Jewish heritage. They would have definitely grown up probably having Hebrew as their main language, but for whatever reason, yeah. I guess we don't know. It, well, it would have been it would have been like growing up in like Montreal, where right. like your family might speak French at home. But out in the world, everyone speaks English. Right. So, like, I can imagine for these guys growing up, it was like, yeah, my family speaks Hebrew at home. I can Mm -hmm. speak Hebrew with my best friends. But when I'm doing business in the wider world, when I'm out and about, Greek is kind of the common tongue. Yeah. So... Yeah, and and I mean, also we're ignorant Canadians who only speak one language because we only yeah. have to speak one language. Like like people who grow up in like small European countries. Yeah, I wish you know, like, like I, yeah, you know, like like this is just how life is. You just grow up surrounded by multiple different languages, and you just. But what's interesting is it. This is a side note, but it is apparent when you learn to read. And I'm not. I'm not even at this point yet. This is just something I've learned from people who are smarter than me. But when you read the New Testament in Greek you can really tell like who was actually good, like who was a good Greek speaker and who wasn't (laughs) like some of the new Testament. It's pretty obvious. Like, okay, this is somebody who spoke Hebrew and they're just trying their best to write in Greek. Yeah. But then some books, the new Testament, it's like, this guy was very literate. Like this guy really knew how to work the language. Yeah. But anyway, so the reason the Septuagint is important is because we can get a lot of insight into the way that certain words are used in the New Testament mm-hmm. by 
tracing how they're used in the Old Testament. Yeah. Because those are the scriptures that are kind of feeding the imagination of the biblical authors as they're writing and reflecting about Jesus. Right. How do you... I'm going to keep no, go ahead. trailing off. How do you uh, know when to look at the original Greek in the Old Testament and the original Hebrew? Do you just kind of compare both and hope that one stands yeah. out? Or like, I what, mean, this is, a, like? Like, this is a huge field of New Testament scholarship. I actually, I had a professor and this was literally, this was what he did yeah. as a scholar is he did like comparative readings between the New Testament and the Old Testament Greek to try to determine like, okay, are they directly quoting from the Septuagint right. or are they just translating the Hebrew from the Hebrew Old Testament back into Greek or blah, right. blah, blah. There are times though where it's almost undeniable, where it's like a word-for-word -word quotation okay. yeah. from the Septuagint. Makes sense. That happens especially with Paul, I believe. Paul mm -hmm. was definitely reading the Septuagint. Okay, cool. Um, anyway, so this term, uh, Christ, this is the whole, this is where I'm trying to get with this whole <laughs> rabbit trail. Yeah. This term Christ is used in the Septuagint. So it, it, the term Christ doesn't show up in our Old Testament, but it showed up in the Greek Old Testament in the Septuagint, okay. if that makes sense. Oh, okay. okay. So an example yeah. of this is uh, Psalm 1850. Did I give you Psalm 1850 yes, there? I got okay, it. Re read that puppy okay. for me. Psalm 1850. He gives great salvation to his king and shows faithfulness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Yeah, so that's how it appears in our Old Testaments. Right. Uh, that term anointed, if you read this in the Septuagint, is Christos, which, okay. is, which is Christ. Right. So. Cool. Yeah. Um, so we don't get that because most of our translations are going straight from Hebrew, right? Because we're not translating usually from the Septuagint. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. But no, you're, that's right. Most of our translations are going straight from Hebrew manuscripts. Yeah. And also just like the word Christos mm -hmm. literally means anointed. Okay, so like right. the word, I don't know what the Hebrew word is there, okay. but whatever that Hebrew word is, we would just translate it to anointed in English. Okay. Because that's literally what it means. But then in Greek, we would tra translate it to Christ or... Because Christos is the Greek word for anointed. Yeah. Okay. See, there's there's so much interesting play I know. between between how like the words that we have taken from Greek or Hebrew to, to then became English words in a sense, yeah. even though like Christ by itself in English doesn't mean any like anything except yeah. referring to Jesus. Like yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, there's that. It's but sometimes the English hard to the English word Christ, and I'm I'm just saying this to make sure I have my own thoughts straight. The English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, yeah, which means anointed. Mm -hmm. And so in the Old Testament, when they use the word anointed, we can fill in. We Christ, can we in sense. can fill well Christos Christos okay. because Christos is the Greek. Whereas I feel like when we use the English Christ, that's referring specifically to Jesus, yeah, which is right. weird. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Languages are weird. Uh -huh. This is why, you know, I have studied, well, I'm still studying. I'm studying as much of the languages as I need to do the scholarly work of a Bible scholar, but yeah. they're, they aren't, I'm just not smart enough to be a primarily biblical language scholar. Like those guys are next, those guys are next level. Yeah. I had a prof at Vanguard who was yeah. fluent in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Yeah. That's insane. Insane. Yeah. Although I've, I, I've never studied Aramaic, but I've been told that Aramaic is just easy Hebrew. Right. Which, so. which they, they, even people saying when, once they learn a yeah. third language, they're like, oh, it's just, you know, yeah. it gets easier. So it's like the more languages, you know, the less impressive it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, that last one was, must've been easy. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, 
I, I don't understand how mm-hmm. some people's brains work. But yeah. anyway, so this term Christos, like I was saying, it shows up in the Old Testament. Our English Old Testaments would use the word anointed. Yeah. But see, in this Psalm specifically, his his anointed Christos is being used in conjunction with David and mm-hmm. David's descendants. Yeah. So these were the sort of texts that Israel was holding on to right. and like eschatologically hoping that David and his descendants would sort of, you know, like this kingdom mm-hmm. would be eternal. Yeah. David's. And so um, here we go. Here's another good one. This same thing is happening in Second uh, Samuel 7, 12 to 14. I've made you read a bunch, so I, I, I can read this one. Cool. But this is the prophet Nathan speaking to David. Yeah. And Nathan, it's like it's God speaking through Nathan. Yeah. But God says through Nathan, when your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now, on the surface, this is talking about Solomon. Yeah. Right? Because David's son is Solomon. Solomon mm-hmm. also becomes king. That becomes a whole thing. Yeah. But this is the sort of text, and we have evidence for this, that was readapted by like the community around Jesus as an eschatological prophecy. Right. Like a prophecy that David's descendants would have this kingdom forever. Yeah. Right. Well, that's that's like started since Abraham, is yeah. that long-term... Mm-hmm generational, you know, family of God that will like continue forever. Yeah, that will, and, con- yeah. Yeah. And then David just kind of builds on that through like a king. And that's why the genealogies are so important. Right. Because it shows, it's not so much like the biological descendants yeah. that's being recorded, yeah. but it's that, it's that chain, like, mm-hmm. like that family heritage of, yeah. of God's kingdom and God's favor that's running throughout the entire biblical narrative. And that's what those genealogies are doing is they're, especially with relation to Jesus is they're putting Jesus in continuance with the entire, you know, biblical story with the whole lot of them. Yeah. The whole, yeah. It, you know what? We, we don't have to park. We can just continue. But I just thought now I wonder because it wasn't God's, um, whether, you know, whatever we believe about God's plan, yeah. quote, I don't know. Um, that's a whole other discussion. Whole nother but thing. it wasn't God's heart for king for Israel to have a king, mm. right? He that was that like said like it hurt hurt him. And yeah. whoever was the prophet at the time was very oh was it Samuel? Was, oh, it was Samuel. Right, right. Yeah. Samuel anoints yeah. David. Yeah, duh. Uh, Samuel's like very upset about that. So I wonder um, if that never happened, and if Israel would have just been led by by prophets and yeah. like how they would have built the kingdom narrative around Jesus, or if they ever would have. Well, and so there's a there's a threefold. Uh, I gotta make sure I'm saying this right. There's there's kind of a threefold narrative around Jesus that people reference, yeah. where he's the prophet, the priest, and the king. Right. So I th- I think you're bang on. Like if the king aspect was gone, mm-hmm. if Israel had never had a king, I don't think that necessarily would have changed anything about Jesus as a person. Right. Because there's also this prophet and priest. Yeah. side to things that he's fulfilling. We're not even there yet, and I haven't done my research there, so I'm going <laughs> to stop you right there before you make me look stupid for not knowing something. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's... That, but I, I do think about that sometimes, and I think about... Um, I think about that even in relation to the world, to the world's governments today. I think, you know, this wasn't God's original intent. Like, this mm-hmm. wasn't... Uh, this wasn't 
according to the Bible, this isn't exactly what God wanted in the first place, but yeah, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Where were we? Right. So this passage from Nathan to David, um, yeah. Nathan says, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. Yeah. On the surface level, it's talking about Solomon in the time of Jesus. We have record that this was an eschatological hope that yeah. this hope was being adapted. So let's also talk about, um, back in Mark one verse one. Yeah. So there's three things at play here. There's gospel, Christ, and son of God. Yeah. We've talked about gospel, we talked about Christ and now son of God is trippy because son of, you know, this is something that throughout the whole history of the church, like theologians have debated, like how exactly the relationship between God and Jesus works. Like, yeah. is, it, is it a biological conception? Like, is there what, you know, like that sort of thing gets debated. I don't, I don't want to say that that's missing the point, Yeah, okay. but that's not when the biblical authors are using the term son of God to describe Jesus. I don't think they're trying to describe any like all encompassing philosophical formula that describes the exact right. means of Jesus's conception and birth. Yeah. Right. And I'm not, I'm not denying the, the, you know, I'm not denying the virgin birth or, or, or anything like that. But mm-hmm. what's happening here with the son of God title is actually super interesting when you again, start to read what's being said about Jesus in light of Israel's kind of expectations and this whole king narrative. Yeah. Because throughout the Psalms, uh, the term son of God is used for king, for a, I think for a few different king figures throughout mm. Psalms. Okay. And it's not, of course, that we don't believe that, you know, David was the result of a virgin birth. Yeah. And so there we can be reasonably sure that it's being used as a title of like divine status and divine favor. Okay. Like, David is, um, David is like in God's vicinity. Hmm. And this is actually, this is actually a pretty common like Jewish idiom to say that it, like if you are like part of a club of some sort to say that you are like a son of that thing. Sons of anarchy. That's actually, yeah. Like that's a good example <laughs> of it. That show, but anyway. And there's, <laughs> there's that we should not promote that show on this Christian podcast. Brennan I've Cumber. never seen it. I don't know it's, if it's well, bad. We're not going to promote it because this is a Christian podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> But like, there's um, it's a cool way to be in a gang. Call yourself the sons of something. The sons of something. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that happens in the Old Testament. There's the sons of the prophets. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I think is it Isaiah that has no, or is it Ezekiel? Do I need. They, I they need. call themselves like the sons of Baal, Baal when they're uh, when those prophets are challenging. I'm, I'm googling Elisha right or Elijah. I can never remember which one. Why would the Bible put two <laughs> such similar names one after another? I know. I yeah. Uh, <laughs> like it would have been much easier if they would have just switched. You know, one of those with like Moses or something. I could remember who's who. <laughs> yeah. Oh, here we go. Sons of the prophets, members of a prophetic order or guild. This Hebrew term occurs eleven times, all during the period of Elijah with mm. a J. Oh, and especially Elisha. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, because they were one after another. They were one same, after another. Same and time. only in the books of First and Second Kings. The term is a technical one referring to members of a prophetic order or guild and has no reference to physical descent from a prophet. Yeah. So that's... A guild. A guild. That's a word we don't use as much as we should these yeah. days. <laughs> but yeah, so basically this term son of something means mm-hmm. like you are part of that thing's club. Okay. You are... You are a, a spiritual descendant of okay. that thing. 
Gotcha. And so in the Psalms, this term son of God is used to describe, um, to describe like kingly figures. Right. And it also shows up, I have it written down here. I'm trying to remember the, the exact verse. Yes. Uh, Psalm chapter two, uh, verse six to eight. I think I gave that to you as well. You can read that one. You did not. Sorry, I did dude. not. No. Oh shoot. I got Mark chapter two. Oh, That's I'm... the next verse. Okay. Well, this is, I guess I'll fill in here. <laughs> Brennan dropped the ball guys. <laughs> this is Psalm chapter two, verse six to eight. I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Flat earth confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sorry I'm, to distract from I'm the point. sure that's... I would, that would be funnier if I wasn't positive that someone has probably oh, done that. At some, sure. Absolutely, <laughs> someone has. Okay, um, there, I'm just noticing in Mark chapter 1, Yeah. well, like, when, when things are referring to Jesus, they usually capitalize. So here, Son of God is capitalized, so it's mm-hmm. like... Jesus, son of God. Yeah. Um, do they capitalize it at all in the Old Testament? I would assume not because they're not. Uh, oh, that's a good question. I, Cause cause I, I, I feel like that that changes. The, let's, let's look at uh, how I would read it. Let's look at my, my good friend, Blue Letter Bible. <laughs> Psalm 2, 6. I don't know how <laughs> important that is, but. It, it is. Uh, that would be kind of interesting. So oh, it is, Brennan. It is capitalized. It is capitalized. Huh. It's U with a capital Y. Yeah. Are my with a capital M, S with a capital, or son with a capital S. S with a capital S. <laughs> S with a capital S. <laughs> um, it capitalizes my as well. Oh, because, because that's it's referring God. to God. Yeah. And U is just the that's beginning of the sentence. Really interesting. I, wow. I am really glad that you're here to point these things out to me. Um, yeah. So you are my son. Uh, this day have I begotten thee. There's the there's the KJV. Yeah. So do you think when it's capitalizing son, it's always referring to like Jesus in the old like in the Old Testament? Is that are they trying to point well, that out, or I don't know? I have no clue. I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't, and I don't even know honestly. I don't even know enough about the mechanics of Hebrew to know how you would know what to capitalize in ooh, Hebrew right. translation. And whatnot. That would be a good question for me to ask a few okay. very intelligent people well, that I know. But that's a side note. That's a Thank side you note. Moving. That's a tangent. Well, so well, been on a few tangents. Now, now, yeah, we get on so many more tangents when we're in person. Yeah, I think. I, well, it's just so much easier so to much talk. Easier. And yeah, yeah. and we're just having fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so Jesus's baptism in yeah. Mark yeah. is huge mm-hmm. because this is seen. As a sort of, and I'm not just making this up on the spot. This is like, you know, something that scholars argue. This is seen as sort of the parallel to the anointing of David. Okay. Because, so let's look back at this Psalm. So, uh, oh no, it doesn't. Oh, I thought that the Psalm used the term anointing, but it doesn't. Okay, but it says, I have set my king on Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. Right. Uh, my holy hill. I will tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. So in Jesus' baptism, the sky, in Mark, you know, yeah. the sky opens up. Mm-hmm. There's this loud noise and this voice comes from the heavens. And what does it say? You're my son. You with are, you, I'm well pleased. He doesn't say with you, I'm well pleased. Oh, is that in a different... Oh, wait. That, maybe that's in a different... Uh, no, wait. No, I chap- think it, or not I think chapter, it does say... Book. 
Because there's so there's two times that this happens. One is Jesus' baptism, and the other is Jesus' transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And right. Right, actually, right. I have written in my notes here that it was at Jesus' baptism that he says, "With you, I am well pleased." So you might be right. Mm. But then at Jesus' transfiguration, uh, yeah, Jesus' transfiguration, the voice also comes from the heavens, and it says, "This is my son, the beloved." Right. Okay. So now I'm going to quote from uh, our pal, Dr. Richard Hayes, and he's we're going to quote from another scholar later on. So I'm not just, I'm, I've done my research. I'm not just basing my whole stance on one book, but yeah. uh, Dr. Richard Hayes says, he says the echo of Psalm two. So that's the, um, that's the one I just read about you are my son. Mm-hmm. The echo of Psalm two in Mark one verse 11 turns the baptism of Jesus into a disguised Royal anointing. And Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom follows implicitly as the assertion of his own claim to sovereignty. Okay. Can you so, break that down? Yes. Like, like start with half a sentence. Yeah. I think I got the beginning half. Second half, all, all the words yeah. kind of so, jumbled in my head. The echo of Psalm 2 in yeah. Mark 1 verse 11. Which uh, specifically, what verses? The, this is my son verse um, or um, anointed more? I'm go- Yeah, it's the, I can read it here. Neither of us brought our physical Bibles. So <laughs> yeah. we have to look up, look it up all night. Yeah. So Mark 1 verse 11 is after the bap or during the baptism. Uh, and a voice came from the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Okay. So Richard Hayes is arguing here that there is an echo of Psalm 2, yeah. which is the psalm that we just read, uh, in Jesus' baptism story. Okay. So in Psalm 2, God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay. Actually, he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, and you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay. So there's this kingship theme being correlated with the son of God theme. Yeah. And then at Jesus' baptism, the voice says, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Cool. Okay. So oh, wait, just that say, you are my son is kind of the specific echo there. That's yeah. that's the correlation. That's the time yeah. point. Okay. It's the you are my son. And so Richard Hayes says that that echo of Psalm 2 and Mark 1 verse 11 turns the baptism of Jesus yeah. into a disguised royal anointing. Okay. So so then you can view the, the baptism through okay he is now starting his kingdom or he has been yeah. anointed to be king because yeah. of his baptism paralleled with david being anointed to become king okay so well, finish finish what yeah, you're saying. yeah i i'm go i'm going to okay. i'm going to finish i have a question but i don't know <laughs> and uh yeah, so it turns the baptism of Jesus into a disguised royal anointing yeah and jesus's proclamation of the kingdom follows as the assertion of his own claim to sovereignty so, okay, is the assertion of his own claim to sovereignty. What is he referring to there? So, Can, because so Jesus in in the Mark narrative, yeah, Jesus gets baptized in the first chapter, like yeah. right away, like, boom into boom, it, boom right into it, and then immediately after that, um, he goes immediate, into the wilderness, right? Uh, I believe well, you I know believe what so. I have it right in front of me, so you can just read. Um. Okay, so Gospel of Mark starts, first thing that happens is John the Baptist appears in the wilderness and mm-hmm. he's preaching. Yeah. And then Jesus comes to John to be baptized. Yeah. Uh, and then immediately after, oh yeah, and then immediately after that, he goes into the wilderness. You were right. And then uh, after that, it says uh, John was taken into custom, custody, custody. <laughs> and then Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, so that's what kind of you think uh, Richard 
uh, yeah. Haas is is referring to? It's Hayes Brennan. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I Rich, can't remember. Oh, I see the name now. So what Hayes. he's what he's arguing? Sorry, Mr. Haas. Doctor Haas. Sorry, Mr. Haas. <laughs> no, it's Hayes. <laughs> okay. So what he's arguing is that if we understand Jesus's baptism yeah. as a royal anointing. Mm. And we we understand it as a royal anointing because of that echo of the Psalms okay. being used. Yeah. Then what is now being said is that because Jesus has been quote unquote anointed, yeah. now he has the authority to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God is here. Oh. Because okay. he's been anointed as king. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, cool. I think I'm think I'm catching the full the full the little bit of the view of that. Well, yeah. Um why do you think this might be a whole nother rabbit hole. So I'll, we, I'll just, I'll just shut you up if it is. So yeah. But I'm just thinking like, why was the, why was the baptism the start of that? What's the, like to, to me, I was yeah. always like, okay, Jesus got baptized because like uh, to show us that we should get baptized and maybe out of like, obviously God was pleased with it. So it's some sort of obedience, <laughs> but I don't know why Jesus needed to be baptized. So the actual why Jesus got baptized is something that I should look into more. Okay. Baptism has its roots in the like ancient Jewish temple practices right. where there would be like a ritual kind of bathing before you entered the temple. Right. Like, cause you the had cleansing. Be, yeah. Is yeah. this ritual kind of cleansing? Uh, okay. And so I'm, but there's probably stuff at play there. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm not sure exact. I, I would have to do more research into exactly what baptism meant and yeah. why. But I do know it had its roots in like older Jewish practices of mm-hmm. like ritual cleansing. And there's probably also something to say about Jesus's humility in starting that because, yeah. like, even John was saying, like, oh, like I don't know if he says it in Mark, but he says it in a different uh, book, like. I'm like, he oh. kind of opposes Jesus. He's like, no, I'm, I'm I can't baptize uh, you. Like he, Mar, or, um, you know, John the Baptist knows yeah. that like, maybe yeah. he, he probably doesn't get the full picture, but he knows that Jesus is like above him. Well, cause I think, doesn't John say to Jesus, like, I should be coming to you yeah. to be, but you're coming to me to be baptized. Yeah. So there's this kind of, or in some of his prophecies, he's, he says, uh, I'm not even worthy to untie a sandals. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's, the, that's right here. That's in Mark one verse seven. There could be, yeah. I don't like, I'm just shooting yeah. whatever's in my mind. But yeah, there could be something about like Jesus's humility and stepping into the, the almost stepping into the, a king, almost the role of a king that will die for his people. That yeah, will be crucified. Not, not to, not to be served, but to serve yeah. kind of thing. Like yeah. he's lowering himself. Obviously he should be baptizing other people, but yeah, he's yeah. lowering himself, you know, below people. So yeah. maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I, th- I think you're probably onto something. And I, I would have to do more research into the actual origins of baptism. Yeah. But what's important for right now... <laughs> We're going to need to break this up into a we, couple. We might need to break this up into a couple episodes. <laughs> but what's important for now is that this is a disguised royal anointing. Okay. This is now gotcha. Jesus is anointed as king. Yeah. And in parallel with David's story, he's been anointed, but he hasn't been inaugurated yet. Yeah. So he has the authority to proclaim the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm even if he hasn't been enthroned, so to speak. 